Here's Anne Graham Lutz. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5 speaks of the worthiness of Jesus. He's worthy, absolutely supreme as Lord of Lords, totally sufficient as the Lion and the Lamb. Happy Resurrection Day. Today we celebrate the risen Jesus. He came to live and die so that we might die and live. You're listening to Living in the Light with this week's edition of Anne Graham Lott's powerful series of messages from the book of Revelation, and that as you do, you will open your eyes and heart to the person of Jesus Christ, and it's his resurrection we celebrate on this Easter. So here now is Anne opening in prayer for today's message from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 titled, Hope as We Look Forward. So Lord Jesus, we bow before you. And we can hardly take in what Revelation 4 and 5 is revealing to us. What an amazing scene you showed, John. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day when all the voices of opposition, rejection, rebellion are drowned out and our ears are filled with praise of the one who alone is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power. We long to hear it reverberating throughout the universe. And we know that it emanates from the throne. The praise was central. So until that day, we ask that you would make that praise central in our lives as we crown you king of our hearts. We accept that invitation. We place you on the throne of our hearts. You are absolutely supreme. You have the right. You hold that position of greatness and glory and grace and your presence, your mercy, your authority, purity, the activity. And absolutely sufficient as lamb, undisputed in your power, unequal in who you are in your position and unrivaled in praise. Oh Lord God, we pray that we would live our lives so that other people can get a glimpse of what it means to live under your authority. So I ask that you take this message and that you Impress it on our hearts. Make it go deep, Lord, that this night would be the night that we would place you once and for all as not just king of kings, but king of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The study of Revelation, I think, is thrilling. And I love this book. In chapter 1, we ended by falling down at his feet surrendering for whatever he has for us. And then he takes this seriously. It's like he picks this up and says, all right, you're surrendered and you're serious about serving me and doing whatever I say, but before we can do that, we need to look inside. And so then he cleans us up on the inside and begins to pinpoint things that need to go out or need to come in. And now, in this message, he's saying, now that you have surrendered and you've cleaned up on the inside, it's time to place Jesus as king on the throne of your heart. These are some questions I've thought of. Is it worth it to do that? Is it worth it to make him king of your heart? Questions that we might ask some of the biblical characters. Abraham, was it worth it to leave Ur of the Chaldees and you know, wander around in tents and for 25 years have really nothing to show for it except basically one son, the cave of Machpelah, and the unfulfilled promises of God? 
Have you ever wanted to ask Moses, was it worth it to leave the treasures of Egypt and lead a band of former slaves through the wilderness, going in circles for 40 years and never even get into the promised land? Have you wanted to ask Daniel, was it worth it to pray three times a day and be thrown into the lion's den? Jeremiah, was it worth it to preach 65 years and never have a positive response to your message? John the Baptist, was it worth it to speak the truth to Herod's face and lose your head? Virgin Mary, was it worth it to say, be it unto me according to your will, and then see the son that you conceived grow up and be crucified on a Roman cross? Have you ever wanted to ask yourself some of these questions? Is it worth it to get up early every morning, set that alarm so your heart goes out and you jump out of bed? But you have to sacrifice sleep to do that so that you can spend time with the Lord in the morning. Is that worth it? Is it worth it to live your life in obedience to God's word and surrender to his way and walking with him when nobody else is? They're all going in the opposite direction, even in your church. Is it worth it to live your life in the light of his return and be labeled some extremist, a fanatic? Is it worth it to share the gospel with your friend and lose the friendship? Is it worth it to tell the truth when lying would have gotten you a promotion, give you more money, give you favor in the eyes of somebody, and by the way, everybody else is lying? Is it worth it to speak the truth? Is it worth it, thinking of where we've been so far, to fall at the feet of Jesus as though dead? Is it worth it to surrender everything to him when maybe what he wants from you is not something you want to give? Maybe his will for your life is not what you had planned or your goals, and is it worth it to give him that control? Is it worth it to open up your heart and let him search your heart? And is it worth it to turn away and look at your schedule and repent of your business? Is it worth it to turn away from your fearfulness and share the gospel with that other person? Is it worth it to get up in the morning for a prayer, to be real and not be a phony? Is it worth it to stop being so timid and walk through that open door? Is it worth it to crucify your pride and humble yourself and... Come to him as a little child. Is it worth it? And I'm going to answer all of those questions. Yes, 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 yes. It's worth it. You know why? Because Jesus is worth it. He's worth every sacrifice, every moment of pain, everything that you might risk in rejection or persecution. He's worth giving the control of your entire life to him. He's worth serving him. You long to do something for him, the one that you love. Yes, it's worth it. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5 speaks of the worthiness of Jesus. Turn to Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at this. He's worthy, absolutely supreme as Lord of Lords, totally sufficient as the Lion and the Lamb. So in chapter 4, John says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. That's a wonderful thought. You could take a whole message just on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he opened heaven's door for you and me. Heaven is open for those who put their trust in Jesus. And the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So after this, after what? After he's dealt with the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So from this point on, Through chapter 19, until Jesus comes back, followed by the armies of heaven, the church is not mentioned again. And so 
Many people believe that the rapture of the church takes place between chapters 3 and chapter 4. And when John is caught up into this throne room, it's just sort of a shadow of the rapture when we're caught up to be with Jesus. I don't know if that's so or not, but I believe we're in chapters 4 and 5 because in chapter 5, we're gathered around the throne and there are people there from every language, tongue, kingdom, and I believe that includes you and me. I believe that includes those who have been caught up in the air to be with Jesus, but nobody knows for sure. I just do know for sure there will be a rapture. (laughs) I do know that Jesus is coming to take us to be with himself. I do know that that's imminent. Somebody asked the question, how many generations until then? This is a generation. Wake up. This is a generation. We're living in the last of the last days. And I can base that on Matthew 24 and other scriptures, but, but I'm firmly convinced of that. So after this, after he's dealt with the church, now he's caught up into the throne room and John is invited to come into the throne room where God is seated and Jesus is seated. This is the center of their power. One time when I went to Buckingham Palace, I wasn't invited, I bought a ticket like every other tourist, and I toured Buckingham Palace and I came to the throne room. I thought that was one of the most interesting places. It looked rather ordinary. It wasn't, you know, you think there'd be marble steps and there'd be glorious, things, but still just a rectangular room carpeted in red velvet and the two chairs, they looked very uncomfortable, straight backs and... Uh, covered in red velvet, and they were on a raised platform about three steps high. The walls were covered in red damask. It was trimmed out in gold, but that's where they do official business. They have official ceremonies. There's a lot of history in that throne room. It's the center, in a sense, of the power of the British Empire. And it would be equivalent, I guess, in America to the Oval Office. And the Oval Office in the White House is called the Oval Office because it's oval in shape and has curved windows that look out on the South Lawn and the north part of the the room has a fireplace and there are comfortable chairs and a big desk where the president presides and that's the center of power in America. People come from all over the world to meet with him in the Oval Office. And I think about the throne room in Buckingham Palace and I think about the Oval Office and I'm here to tell you they are nothing compared to what we're going to read about in chapters four and five. They're tawdry in comparison. This is amazing. I just pray that God will open your spiritual eyes and give you a glimpse as he did to John of what takes place in the throne room in heaven. And he says in verse two, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And we find hope in Jesus, who is absolutely supreme as Lord. And we know this by his position because we know God the Father sits on the throne, but we know Jesus also sits on the throne. So for our purposes, I'm focusing on Jesus who's seated on the throne. And that's a position of authority and power and control. When he's seated on the throne, he's in charge of everything that's taking place in heaven, in the universe, on earth, in your life. So what has caused you to doubt that Jesus is seated on the throne? Is it when we've had these elections? And I'm sorry, but some of the bad guys seem to come out on top, and evil seems to triumph, and our children are being sexualized in elementary school, and then they're mutilated, calling it gender dysphoria, and sex trafficking, and abortion on demand up until the moment of birth, and even then Montana voted that if a baby is born alive, either through cesarean section or abortion, and the baby is viable, the doctor doesn't have to treat it. They can just throw it away. And I say, Jesus, really? 
So what's happened to you? Maybe it's not anything like that. Maybe it's more personal. It's when you were diagnosed with cancer. When your spouse of how many years walked out on you? Was it when your son came home and said he's a girl? And you say, Jesus, are you seated on the throne? And John said, I saw him <laughs> seated on the throne. Isaiah chapter 6, the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah looked up and saw Jesus seated on the throne. Sometimes his ways are not our ways, right? And we just have to trust him when we don't understand. There's a mystery to all of this, but we know that Jesus is seated on the throne. Other thrones, you know, come and go. Kings come and go. Leaders come and go. Jesus is always seated on the throne in absolute charge, absolute control. And one of the blessings when something disastrous happens to you when I was diagnosed with cancer, when my son was diagnosed with cancer, when Rachel Ruth had her two uh, heart attacks, and I was standing beside her and knew I was watching her dying. And at that moment, I was filled with confidence because I knew Jesus seated on the throne. There are no accidents with him. There are no mistakes. He knows exactly what he's doing. I had no idea I would have cancer, but he did. It was part of his plan and purpose for my life. So then I say, all right, Lord, what's this about? Not that why did you let it happen to me, but you know, how can you use this in my life? How can I use it for your glory? So it's a wonderful thing to fall back when, when something like that happens and you just fall back into the confident hope, confidence that Jesus is seated on the throne. He's in charge and his supremacy is revealed, his position of greatness that he's seated on the throne, his position of glory. In verse 5, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and Jasper is like a diamond, carnelian is like a ruby. So I don't exactly know what that means, but I think it just means that Jesus is beautiful. <laughs> and you know, when Moses asked God to show him his glory and God put him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by, he said, you can just see my backside. But, but he showed Moses his glory, but what he showed him was his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness. The glory of God is his character. So I think of the character of Jesus like a diamond like a ruby with all of its multifaceted beauty, reflecting light. And this is the heart of the Shekinah glory. This is the source of the Shekinah glory, the glory of God emanating from Jesus like a brilliant jewel, all of his character shining and all of its beautiful facets. And it's more than that. It's a position of greatness and a position of glory, but a position of grace because in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year to make atonement for the sin of the people, he wore a breastplate, and on his breastplate were 12 semi-precious stones, and each stone was carved with one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And the significance was that when the high priest went into the presence of God, he carried the names of God's children on his heart. And the first was a jasper, and the last was a carnelian. And I believe as Jesus is sitting on the throne and he's getting ready to come back and judge the world and pour out his wrath and in control of everything, in charge, and by the very colors that he wears, he's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I carry you in my heart. And he won't stop loving you when he's there on the throne at the center of the universe getting ready to orchestrate everything that we read in the rest of the book of Revelation. His supremacy 
is revealed not only by the position that he holds, seated on the throne, but by his presence on the throne. And his presence is revealed by his mercy. Verse 4, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Do you remember the first time we see a rainbow? I know you do. After Noah built the ark and it preached righteousness and invited everybody to come on. Nobody would come on except his family. So he went in the ark, preaching for seven days, getting the animals settled, and nobody would come. So finally God shut the door. And the judgment that everybody said wasn't coming came, and the vapor canopy over the earth burst, and the floodgates of the deep erupted, the earth's crust erupted, and the water just deluged the earth, and the whole earth was flooded, covering even the highest mountains. And Noah and his family and all the animals inside the ark for over a year. And then the waters dried up. And the day came when God said, all right, Noah, you can come out. So Noah and all those animals came out. He sacrificed some of those precious animals just in thanksgiving to God. And have you ever wondered what Noah thought the next time he heard thunder? (laughs) Next time he felt the raindrops. Because, you know, up until the flood, there had been no rain on earth. It was like a terrarium. And then all of a sudden he went through that, and then the next time, would he be terrified? God, having once been saved from your judgment, am I going to lose my salvation? I don't have an ark this time. Am I going to come under your judgment? And so God gave Noah a sign, a covenant, and it was the rainbow that he gave Noah. And he said, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Never again will I send a flood on the earth. Listen to me, environmentalists. Never again would he send a flood on the earth. As long as the earth exists, there will be seed time and harvest, summer and winter. You don't have to worry about the glaciers melting and flooding the earth. You don't have to worry about us burning up to a crisp. And, you know, God is in control. Yes, we might be in a a global cycle of warming, but it's not what they're telling you it is. God has said so. You take God at his word and you look at the rainbow. It doesn't represent what they use it to represent today. It represents the covenant that God made with Noah. I'm committed to you, Noah. You're saved. Yes, yes. Amen. And so think about it. The rainbow was given to Noah so that when Noah saw the rainbow, he would remember God remembered he was saved. Somebody here afraid you can lose your salvation. Somebody afraid something you've done, something you've said, Once being saved, you think you can lose it. And so God has given you a sign. It's the sign of the cross. And you look at the cross, and you remember, God remembers you're saved. You will never lose your salvation. So that emerald rainbow around the throne, to me, speaks of his mercy. And in verse 4, his authority, he was surrounded on the throne, with 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So I don't exactly know who they were, but obviously they're kings. He's the king of kings, remember? So these are 24 kings who reign with him. And the interesting thing in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron and Levi. And after a while, there were so many descendants that they had to divide them up into 12 orders. And there were two people from each order that served the Lord in the temple at any one time. So the 24 priests who served the Lord in the temple at any given time. And so these kings, I believe, are not only kings who reign with him, but they're there to serve the king of kings. The highest positions in the universe 
are positions of service to Jesus. Jesus said that if you want to be great, the ones that are greatest among you are the ones who serve. The Son of Man has come to serve. And we are to do as he does. So these kings, with their crowns dressed in white, but they give an impression to me. Their service is dignified. It's serious. They do it with excellence. There's no haphazard coming late, slouching on the throne, you know, doing what they feel like. They're just at full attention, ready to serve at a moment's notice, whatever the king wants. So if you're in service to the Lord, how, how are you serving him? Why is it that we think, you know, we serve our secular employer with more attention and timeliness and consistency and excellency than we do Jesus? It's because we think Jesus will understand if we're late. You think he'll understand if we're tired and we just don't do it quite right. He understands all right. You're not doing it as under the king. You serve him with excellence. The third characteristic I see of his presence, his activity. Verse 5, look at this. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. I don't know what that means, except I know something was going on. It was exciting. The atmosphere was electric. And if Jesus is seated on the throne of your heart, listen to me, you can't do nothing. There's no apathy, no complacency. And I know some people have more energy than others, but surely if he's king, seated on the throne of your heart, you'll be doing something for him. And then his purity, verse five and six, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. That's speaking of the Holy Spirit, by the way. The Holy Spirit, because he's invisible, you know, he's represented by a dove at the baptism of Jesus or the flame of fire at Pentecost because you wouldn't know he was there except he's represented by something. So he's represented by these seven lamps. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal that would just, like a mirror that would reflect his glory throughout the universe. In his presence, there's absolute purity. There's holy, holy, holy. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In his presence, in this throne room, there is no impurity. There's no sinfulness. There's no hidden agenda. There's no evil or nothing that defiles in his presence. So... What in your life needs to be put out? If he's on the throne of your heart, there should be purity in his presence. So just check it off. Maybe I didn't do it so well, but if Jesus is seated on the throne of your heart, there should be mercy. There should never be uncertainty about your salvation. When Jesus is seated on the throne of your heart, you don't keep doubting your salvation. And his authority, you serve him, with excellence, there's no mediocrity in your service when he's king of your heart. When he's king of your heart, there's activity, no apathy, complacency, and there's purity, no immorality, no sinfulness at all. And yes, oh my goodness, I don't want to sin. I try not to sin, but I sin. And so I confess my sin and ask the Lord to cleanse me of this. And I know I'm forgiven because I've been to the cross, and so all of my sin has been forgiven. You know that? When you come to the cross, your past 
sin, your present sin, your future sin, it's all forgiven. It's all under the blood of Jesus. You can just live and enjoy your forgiveness, but I still sin. And so I come back to the cross, not for forgiveness because I've been forgiven, but I come back to the cross to confess my sin that I might be cleansed, that I might maintain that sweet, intimate love relationship with him, that fellowship with him. So in his presence, when he's king of your heart, there should be no conscious sin, no deliberate sin, no willful sin. In fact, First John says, if you're sinning willfully and deliberately and intentionally, then he doubts you even know Jesus. Oh, I long for the day when I see him in his absolute supremacy and the whole universe acknowledging that he's king of kings and lord of lords and seated on the throne at the center of the universe. And in the meantime, I enthrone him as king of my heart, absolutely supreme in my life. Would you do the same? Living in the Light is a weekly study in God's Word with teacher and author Anne Graham Lotz. Learn to listen to his voice, then start making the choice to keep on going and believing and trusting who God is. Go to annegramlotz.org. Take advantage of the many helpful free resources to get you started. Join us again for Living in the Light.